Today is It's My Park Day in New York City, an annual event in which New Yorkers give a little back to their favorite parks. Residents in all five boroughs will be taking time to spruce up parks and playgrounds in their neighborhoods. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. It's volunteer efforts like this one that New York City Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepe says make a big difference in the care and upkeep of parks. Commissioner Benepe is our guest on this morning Cityscape. We recently sat down with him at his office in the Arsenal in Central Park. We talked with him about the state of the city's park system and a whole bunch more, including how music helps to inspire him to build and maintain parks. Commissioner Benepe, thank you so much for joining us on Cityscape. It's great to be here again on uh, my favorite radio station. How long have you been Parks Commissioner now? Well, uh, Mayor Bloomberg appointed me ten and a half years ago, back in... uh, Yes, January of 2002. But your history with the Parks Department goes much further back than that. You started with the Parks Department when you were a teenager, right? Yeah, my, my first job with the Parks Department was in the summer of 1973 when the parks were very, very different than they are now. And I worked uh, as a seasonal park helper, which was the lowest you could be in the Parks Department, on the Lower East Side. I had two jobs. The first job was at a swimming pool on uh, 10th Street between Avenue C and D where I was uh, mopping the locker rooms and cleaning the toilets. And then the other job was in East River Park, raking up beer cans and um, picking up garbage with a, with a stick with a nail at the end of it and putting it in a canvas bag. When you were doing that work, did you ever think that you would grow up to be the New York City Parks Commissioner? Yeah, it was all part of my grand plan. Uh, no, not really. I mean, it was... It was so um, dispiriting. I mean, this was a summer job, so it was good to have a job. I had to take um, you know, two subways and, and then walk a long way to get there. But it, the parks were really terrible. I mean, that park was literally falling into the river, and there was garbage everywhere, and the parks department was completely demoralized. And um, I had no idea I would end up here. And um, But I, I did come back after college as a park ranger when Mayor Koch became mayor and Gordon Davis as a commissioner. And... Um, there seemed to be some fresh winds blowing in the land, and um, yeah, Gordon was a terrific parks commissioner. One of the things he did was create a park ranger program, and I, by accident, stumbled into it. I was working as a reporter for, uh, not a reporter, as an intern, unpaid intern for a weekly newspaper. They sent me over to interview people at the parks department. I met Betsy Rogers, who was the new Central Park administrator, uh, who would later create the Central Park Conservancy. She told me about the park ranger's job. I became a park ranger, and that really began my sort of adult career in the Parks Department beginning in 1979. You have also served as the Director of Arts and Antiquities for the Parks Department, overseeing the memorials and monuments too, right? Yeah, that was a great job. Um, at the time, it also included the historic house museums like the Poe Cottage and the Valentine Variant House in the Bronx and the great Bartow Pell Mansion and Van Cortland House. And I helped to create something called the Historic House Trust, which now is a nonprofit group that helps all 23 historic house museums across the city and uh, was working on restoring statues and monuments. Um, I also worked as the director of natural resources and horticulture. and uh, We um, started to sort of regrow the horticulture division and hire gardeners, and it was the beginning of um, something that's happened a lot since then, which is trying to make the city much more beautiful with the planting of millions of flowers. And I sort of had my chance then to, to start making the city look more beautiful, which, you know, thank goodness I've been able to continue to do as commissioner. After the 9-11 attacks, the city planted daffodils 
across the five boroughs to bring up people's spirits. That was the Daffodil Project. You were behind that project, right? It was, um, we all, all of us here in New York remember that as a really awful time. For me personally, also my, uh, my mother died um, six days before 9-11 and we just um, had the memorial service and then 9-11 um, happened the very next day. So the sort of double whammy. And for all of us, not just New Yorkers, but people who wanted to help, there was nothing that could be done. There were no survivors to tend to, nobody injured, or you know, there were a few injuries, but everybody... It was just a matter of cleaning up the mess, and average New Yorkers couldn't do that. So we wanted to honor their need to do something, and also, uh, more important, try to make people feel like New York was okay, that was going to survive. And I was inspired by Sting's song, Fields of Gold. You remember me when the It's a song about memory and, and loss, and um, I sort of had this image, this vision of fields of daffodils all over the city, and by complete coincidence, right at the same time, um, a great friend and colleague of mine, Lyndon Miller, who was a, a garden public garden designer, had heard from her friend, who was a Dutch bulb producer, a Dutch bulb grower in the Netherlands, who said, you know, what can we do to help? We have all these extra bulbs. Can we donate them to the city? So she had all these bulbs, and we had all the, the labor, the volunteers who wanted to do things, and the two of us came together, and that was the birth of the Daffodil Project. And that very fall, we had thousands of volunteers putting their hands in the earth and sticking the bulbs in and um, sort of helping to spiritually rebirth and regrow the city and to participate in a form of um, contact with the earth that also is a kind of mourning but also, you know, kind of rebirth and now every spring these daffodils come up and everywhere you look around the city there are daffodils then and then Mayor Bloomberg made the daffodil the official flower of New York City so we've um, we may be the big apple but in my mind we're the big daffodil you mentioned that Sting's song Fields of Gold inspired the Daffodil Project does that happen for you a lot songs inspire projects within the Parks Department <laughs> oh yeah well I'm a, I'm a big um, I'm a big music aficionado and uh, lover of music of all kinds. I have a very wide range of of music that I love. Um, you know, uh, I particularly like the mix that WFUV plays uh, because it's just such a, a, a an interesting mix. But I, I can go from opera and classical to to hard rock and everything in between. Um, but I, I find myself moved and inspired by music, and often um, you know, a song will sort of spur me to do something or you know, the, the words of a song will inspire something, or I'll, I'll quote words from a song just uh, sitting in a meeting. But there's, there's all kinds of songs that you think about that deal with what we deal with here in parks. And we're, we're sort of, so the, the, the act of making music is similar to what we do in parks. It's, it's part of a, um, a cultural and artistic expression that makes people happy. You grew up here in New York City. Where exactly did you grow up? I grew up on the Upper West Side, and uh, a neighborhood where I still live. My neighborhood park was Riverside Park and also a very tiny park called Strauss Park. But I also used Central, Central Park a lot. And I was really a, a child of the parks and spent my uh, juvenile delinquency in Central Park and Riverside Park. Um, and I was in the parks. You know, I, I saw the parks both as a child when they were still good but beginning to fade, as a teenager really in terrible shape and kind of dangerous and dangerously dilapidated. 
and then as a young adult got to participate in the beginning of a 30-year renaissance of the park system and has uh, been very lucky to be in a position to see just a complete overhaul of the park system, a huge, you know, the biggest overhaul and expansion in the city's history, um, which is happening right now even as we speak. So I had the, the great fortune to be appointed parks commissioner at a time when a mayor came in who really understood the value of parks, and he and all his deputy mayors, Deputy Mayor Patty Harris and all the others, they're not just something you do at the at the end of the day and think about it at the end of the block, but they're central to quality of life and to economic development and to uh, making a livable city. Early in your career as Parks Commissioner, the city was flush with money. Of course, in recent years, money is much more sparse. How have you been able to weather the economic storm, the cutbacks here in New York City? Well, I, I don't want to pretend it's easy. Um, the people, the men and women of the Parks Department are all working harder and smarter and more efficiently. We've been able to put in some processes to, to enable us to work more efficiently. But, you know, we're, we're all feeling the impact. Um, I think what makes it somewhat easier for the city of New York's park system to withstand this global economic crisis than other cities and counties and states, and I've heard some real horror stories about what's happening in the rest of the country with park systems simply shutting down and facilities shutting down. Uh, we have a, an amazing tradition of, of civic engagement and of involvement with parks here in New York City. Um, you know, all of the great sort of models of public-private partnerships started here in New York City, even, you know, Decades ago, when the Fund for Park Avenue got started as a salute to the seasons, when the neighbors of Park Avenue put up Christmas trees and planted tulips, and then the Central Park Conservancy, of course, was born here, which begat the Prospect Park Alliance and the Bronx River Alliance and um, the, Green, the uh, Greenbelt Conservancy and the Riverside Park Fund. So we now have um, uh, about a dozen major organizations who put together raise about $150 million in charitable donations to, um, in some cases, almost completely maintain parks. For example, Central Park and the High Line uh, and Bryant Park are all completely maintained with non-tax dollars. Um, with, in the case of Central Park um, and a few other parks, it's charitable dollars uh, for the most part with some city money. In Bryant Park, they do it through an earned revenue, and that's not going to work for every park. The average city park, the vast majority, are still going to be paid for with tax dollars, but it, it provides a huge lift. Uh, if the city doesn't have to spend money in Central Park um, or doesn't have to spend a lot of money in Central Park, thanks to generous neighbors through the Central Park Conservancy, we can focus that money on neighborhoods in the Bronx and Brooklyn and elsewhere that, you know, f frankly don't have that kind of wealth. Um, and it's not just wealth. New Yorkers are amazingly generous. There's a lot of wealth in other cities, but you don't have this le level of generosity and philanthropy. And even more than the philanthropy, this is private citizens getting involved with the life of the public park. And um, sometimes when you leave it to, be, to government to be a monopoly taking care of parks, if you do a good job, that's okay. But if you don't do a good job, which we didn't for you know quite a while in the city, the parks can go you know, ba badly downhill very fast. And um, so this level of participation, not just by the people who give money, but by literally tens of thousands of individual volunteers and hundreds of parks who come out as they will on It's My Park Day on May 19th, and they'll be planting and pruning and painting and cleaning. You know, it's that kind of um, civic participation that you just don't get any place other than in New York. And, uh, you know, with that, we hope we'll weather the storm. Um, and, you know, the, the biggest way people can help make sure that parks stay clean and safe is a very simple act. It's really simple. When you have a piece of litter, an empty water bottle, a potato chip bag, an ice cream wrapper, you know, 
the remnants of your picnic, if you take that litter and you walk to the nearest litter receptacle, um, you'll do half our job. Because half of our job, frankly, is picking up litter that people have left behind. And you know, if we didn't have to pick up that litter, we'd have a lot more time to plant flowers and fix benches and fix play equipment. So, you know, that's the major way people can participate. And of course, they can also participate by volunteering their time. I spend a lot of my time picking up other people's litter. It's just how it goes. I want to ask you, can you, Commissioner, enjoy a city park? Can you go out, kick back, and relax on the Great Lawn, or are you always on the job assessing the situation, picking up trash, watching people's behavior? I tell you, it's really hard to just relax and enjoy a park. I try to force myself to do it, and you know, the great joy of my job is I get to be outdoors in parks and get paid for it. And I, I do it during the normal work day, but I also do it on weekends and after hours. Uh, I spend a lot of time out in the parks. I'm a big user of parks. I ride my bicycle. I walk. I jog. I try to get out um, you know, on my own time and do things. But it's, it's pretty hard to relax because there's always something that you see. I'm always picking something up or calling somebody um, you know, the blackberry is the tool of the devil. It means you're in constant contact with people. And my staff, they hear from me all day long and all night long because I'll find something that needs fixing. Um, you know, if I can't fix it myself, I'll reach out. And we have, luckily, we have a terrific staff who all care deeply about the parks. And it, there's always something to do. There's always something that needs fixing. There's always something that needs correcting. And uh, so I really have not been able to truly relax in a park for many, many years. On the other hand... Um, I sometimes can force myself to simply sit down you know, on a bench in the spring sun, smell the flowers, listen to the birds. And that's the other nice thing about the job is when the stress level gets high, I can walk out of my office here in Central Park and you know, be out in nature. And that's, that's a role that parks play. The, parks are like a natural you know, sort of medication for the people of New York. They reduce your stress level. They lower your blood pressure. They um, make you feel better about life. Um, you can, if you sit in the presence of flowers and smell the flowers and hear the birds, it's almost impossible for you to feel unhappy about life. And we are just a, a sort of a very large-scale medication for the citizens of New York. Talking about birds, I understand that you like the song Maybe Sparrow by Nico Case. Yeah, Nico Case is great. And uh, she, um, she has written a lot about nature and about the power of nature, and uh, I love her as a songwriter, as a singer, and as, a, as a, someone, someone who writes very poetically about nature and, and emotions and how the two go together. Maybe, Sparrow, you should wait The hawks alight till morning You never pass beyond the gate If you don't hear my warning you're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarkey. Our guest this morning is New York City Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepee. He's with us to talk about his long career with the Parks Department, the state of the city's park system, and the inspiration he finds through music. How much parkland do you, in fact, oversee? The city of New York is the overseer of 29,000 acres of parkland. And then we've got our great partners in the National Park Service who have another 22,000 acres of parkland, and then the state parks have a 700 acres. You add it all up, and that's 25% of New York. 
um, unbelievably, New York is 25% open space parkland. That doesn't include the open space you find in cemeteries and college campuses and housing complexes. It's a great legacy we have. We're working very closely with the National Park Service on a lot of different projects, including how we can make Jamaica Bay even better. You know, some of our parkland is taken care of by others. Uh, included in that 29,000 acres are some really great institutions like the New York Botanical Garden and the Bronx Zoo and the Colony Island Aquarium. All of the golf courses uh, in the city parks are run by, non, by for-profit concessionaires, so those thousands of acres are taken care of, of by them. So we have this great um, sort of team of people who take care of the city parkland. It's not all us. It's the nonprofit groups. It's the for-profit groups. It's the, non, the cultural institutions. And when you add it all up, we, we get this great experience of, of parks in New York. You mentioned the New York Botanical Garden. Is it true that you're the guy behind the holiday train show at the garden? You're the brainchild for that? I will share credit um, with my uh, great former colleague, Heidi Seesfeld, and we worked together at the New York, she worked with me at the Parks Department when I went to the New York Botanical Garden in the early 90s. Uh, she came along with me. And at the time, um, we were trying to come up with ideas for how to get people into the garden in the dead of winter, and um, at poinsettias wasn't doing it. And so Gregory Long, who's the, the brilliant um, tactician, president, and visionary behind the renaissance of the garden, um, was saying, was challenging people to come up with ideas for how to bring particularly families in. And, um, you know, I knew that there was this holiday tradition of having model railroads around New York City where you go at Christmas time and, and there would be these setups of model railroads. And right around that time, Heidi, Heidi's mother... <laughs> Brought, went to a dentist and found this magazine called Garden Railway Magazine. Apparently there are these hobbyists, aficionados, who build large-scale trains, these G-scale trains, in living landscapes. And we thought, hmm, let's think. Trains, gardens, living landscapes. But we were still missing the angle. So my, um, my history running the historic houses came in, and I said, well, what if we made replicas of historic houses of New York City but made in natural materials, bark and leaves and twigs, as if a sort of you know, a magical fairy kingdom had built these things with trains running through it. Maybe we could sell that. So um, Heidi found this great designer, Paul Bussey, who, dis who took a try at the Poe Cottage. The Poe Cottage was the first sort of scale model he built, and he just hit it. He just nailed it, you know, with acorns and little... Um, choke cherries and uh, all these natural materials and that was the beginning of it and we raised some money we raised twenty thousand dollars that winter you know, Gregory said if you can raise the money go ahead we'll try it out we got Thomas the tank engine to come and that was the beginning of this uh, you know wonderful what has now become a huge holiday tradition that uh, it's so popular they have to sell time tickets to bring people in and it's does that surprise you not at all I mean the first winter we did it was a, a hit um, what has pleasantly surprised me was the, the extent to which the botanical garden has gotten behind us and now raises lots and lots of money and you know every time you think they've they couldn't possibly do another great building made out of natural materials they come up with another one so it just shows that um, you know people are anxious to do things with their families and kids and um, model trains are magical to people and plants are magical and you put the two together and it just creates this wonderful holiday experience Without Adrian Benepe, there wouldn't be the holiday train show at the Botanical Garden. Without your dad, Barry Benepe, we wouldn't have the Union Square Market. Well, my, my father, who's a, very much of an urbanist, you know, someone who loves cities, spent part of his childhood on a farm in Maryland. And uh, 
his big frustration living in New York City was in the middle of July, you couldn't get a real tomato. The tomatoes were in supermarkets, they were coming from Texas and Florida, and they, you know, they, were, they felt like bowling balls and tasted like cardboard. And um, he remembered what a, you know, a field-grown tomato tasted like. So he also liked the, the sense of community you had in Europe with the, with the town squares with the, with the farmer's markets in them. So he put the two together with his childhood on the farm and his uh, city planning background and created the first green markets in the summer of 1976, got some funding from people like the J.M. Kaplan Fund and um, folded it into the Council on the Environment and spent the next 30 years uh, building the, the green market empire, which many people don't know is a nonprofit organization. It, uh, and one of the great things the green, market, the green, green markets do, uh, many of which take place in parks, is they bring fresh produce to people and everyone knows the value of fresh produce. But the other important thing they do that people may not understand is they enable small family farms not just to survive but to thrive and to, to grow. And without the green market, many, many more family farms would have been lost to developments all around uh, the states that surround New York City in the upstate New York and New Jersey and Long Island. So um, the preservation of open green space has been enabled by the ability of farmers to sell directly to the consumers. Speaking about loss to development, I know another of your favorite songs is Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi, right? Well, it's, there's, uh, there's some songs that just go right with what we do, and that's, that's the one. You know, it's about paving paradise to put up a parking lot. Paving paradise to put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone it needs paradise put up a parking lot You don't know what you've got till it's gone. The pizza red eyes put up a parking lot. These days we've been able to say, you know, we're unpaving parking lots and putting up paradise because we've uh, one of our big goals now is to design parks in very um, resilient ways and, and sustainable ways and to use recycled materials. And, and in every case, to every time we build a park now, we're picking up pavement and putting down plants so that stormwater can go into the soil instead of into the sewer system and causing uh, combined sewer overflows. So this kind of sustainable design has now become part and parcel of what we do. And that's also inspired by a song. You know, we're, we're unpaving parking lots and putting up paradise all over the city. And no, no more so than with our green streets. This is a program started by my predecessor, Henry Stern, who was pursued in the most obsessive way, like Captain Ahab pursuing the white whale, Moby Dick, the notion of turning <clears throat> traffic islands, paved traffic islands, into garden spots. And he worked with the then commissioner, the transportation commissioner, Ross Sandler, and a guy named David Gurin, who was the head of planning for DOT, and basically said, you know, if you give us your traffic islands, we'll plant them and maintain them. And uh, 
That was also David Gurin's idea. What if we plan to maintain these traffic islands? And the first one was down, was a, is a viewing garden down on Christopher Street in the West Village. And that was the very first one. And since then, we've done 2,500 green streets all across the city. Uh, so each one of these is like a little micro island uh, for rainwater to go in, for plants to grow, for uh, butterflies and bees to come pollinate and birds to come. So there's these little paradises and these unpaved parking lots all over the city, and it's one of Mayor Bloomberg's favorite programs. And, and now we're funding it, money being tight, through the Department of Environmental Protection because they are working very hard on the uh, whole idea of green infrastructure, that is, instead of building giant new sewer systems, um, create um, bioswales, big tree pits, green streets where you actually capture the stormwater on the streets and put it into a planting bed, have the, have the soil and the plants absorb the pollutants and have the water go into the soil instead of into the sewer system. And uh, so the DEP is providing funding to both build and maintain um, these green streets. How does the Parks Department determine where to build new park land or to improve parks in neighborhoods? It works in many different ways. We, um, we have our planning division, which looks at, does analysis to see where areas are underserved. Through Plan YC, we've been particularly focusing on turning part-time schoolyards into full-time playgrounds, particularly looking at neighborhoods that where, we, where we don't have a park or a playground within a 10-minute walk. And that's the goal of Plan YC. You've got a park or a playground within a 10-minute walk of every New Yorker. We think we're at around 80 5% now. Actually, the Trust for Public Land says we're closer to 96%, but they have a faster walk than we do. Um, but we also sometimes, as elected officials, you know, more and more it's about, you know, where is there open land? There is very little open land left, so we're looking at repurposing brownfields, abandoned industrial areas, even a railroad track in the sky. Uh, in New York, nothing is too crazy to turn into a park, so all the... Um, the abandoned shipping piers and industrial waterfronts of the late 19th century and uh, 20th century are now being turned into new parks like the High Line, Hudson River Park, Brooklyn Bridge Park, the Bronx River, the Queens Waterfront. It's all, you know, it's all has been the subject of you know, almost $5 billion in investment by the city um, over the last 10 years. So we're, we're building parks in, 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 uh, in magnitudes never seen in the city's history except perhaps the WPA of the 1930s. Let me ask you this final question. What has been your single proudest accomplishment since taking on the role of Parks Commissioner? You know, it's an accomplishment. I, uh, I never say that I did this or did that. We have this, uh, enorm this amazing team here at Parks of planners, landscape architects, um, specialists in park management and visionaries, along with, you know, really I've gotten to work for Mayor Bloomberg, who's really the best mayor for parks the Parks Department has ever seen in, you know, two centuries of building parks. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say that collectively it's, collectively, it's the opening up of the waterfront with new parks. If you look at Hudson River Park, if you look at Brooklyn Bridge Park, if you look at what's going on in the Bronx River, what we're beginning to do at the Fresh Kills Landfill in Staten Island, um, along Astoria and the Queens waterfront of the East River, what we've done in, in West Harlem and now in East Harlem. We have brought people to the waterfront, and it's not like we brought them back to the waterfront. The waterfront has been sealed off for commerce since the Dutch came here in 1624. We have opened up the waterfront to recreational use for the first time in the city's history in a, in a very big way over the last 10 years. And I think it's, it's that, and I, I'd say just the trying to make sure that every neighborhood park is at least decent and clean and perhaps much better than that. Uh, we, the, 
I'd have to say collectively it's the, the renaissance, being able to continue the renaissance of the park system that was started uh, really going back to uh, Mayor Koch and continuing on through all the mayors since then who have each, each parks commissioner who has followed has in his or her own way contributed to the renaissance of the park system. It's been a 30-year project. You know, my only worry now is we've done great work over the last 30 years with the current fiscal crisis. You know, will there be money in the future? Who will the next mayor be? And will that next mayor and that next city council and those next board presidents, will they care as much about parks? And we certainly hope so. Being that you're so proud of the access that there is now on the waterfront, give us a waterfront song, if you will, Commissioner, to take us out on. Your choice. Uh, I'll give you two. You can pick one. I, I love I love Nick Drake. Riverman is a great song. It's a moody song. Uh, or sitting under the dock of the bay. They're both sort of um, slightly melancholic, introspective songs that have the have the pace of the water in them. So um, everybody should get to the waterfront and listen to your favorite song about water. Commissioner Benefit, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure, and keep inspiring me to build and take care of parks. Sitting in the morning sun. I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I'll watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Adrian Benepe has been the New York City Parks Commissioner since 2002. Once again, today is It's My Park Day in New York City. For more information on what you can do to help clean up and maintain your favorite park, visit the Parks Department's website at nycgovparks.org. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend. Headed for the Frisco Bay I've had nothing to live for And look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock